You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to our couch. Take a seat. It's time for therapy. Movie therapy. Hello, everybody. Kristen here, and welcome to another bonus episode of Movie Therapy. I am so excited because today's episode includes a very special guest, Margot Donahue, who is one of my very, very, very favorite podcasters, authors, film lovers. She's a superstar. Margot hosts the podcast, What a Creep, and also Book versus Movie, the latter of which has been featured on Movie Therapy in the past. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, Filmed in Brooklyn, and full disclosure, I'm quoted in the book. I invited Margot onto the show today to talk about all things podcasting, movies, to talk about her new book, and we're just so pumped to have you here today, Margot. Margot, welcome to the show. Kristen, I am so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh my gosh. I feel like we're like in this mutual like admiration society because I love all of your shows. I've just been a fan for years and years and years and you've been kind enough to have me on your shows and so on. So uh, it's just such a treat to have you here. So, you know, likewise, and I listen to the New York Times every morning. You know, you ask, you say, Alexa, good I won't say it too loud. Alexa, good morning, and then it gives me the news, and then sometimes your voice pops up for your other podcast, and I'm like, that's my friend Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's one of like five or six shows I think I'm hosting right now. I'm like you. You also host yes. a million shows. But let's talk about the show that I think our listeners love and know the most, first of all, which is book versus movie. Tell us all about that show for the very few who are uninitiated. We are the podcast that talks about films that are adapted from books. We read the book, we watch the movie, then we decide which we like better. In these, we've done this for eight years, which is ancient in podcasting years. I think it's like dog years. It's like 50 or something. But we've covered hundreds of books and we've actually expanded it to be short stories and plays, even songs. We've done songs into movies, that kind of thing. And it's my co-host is also named Margot, and she lives in San Diego and we were fitness bloggers, became friends and then just sort of started this podcast together knowing nothing. And I'm curious, two fitness bloggers <laughs> who don't, you know, even live in the same part of the country. What inspired you to start making this show? We 
we'd go to a convention. It was called Fit Blog, and it doesn't really exist anymore. This is back when blogging was a thing. And we were both named Margo. We're both fitness bloggers. We just kind of found each other through Twitter and social media that way. And then we met up in Savannah for a convention. And we became friends there. And when she had her own little podcast, and it was on a blog talk radio. I don't know if you remember that stuff from a long time ago. You would call in. And we started talking about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and sort of focusing on that versus the convention because that took place in Savannah. And then we start talking about the book and the movie. And one of our listeners said, I really liked that part where you're talking about the book and the movie. And literally the next morning, I just sent her an email and said, would you want to do a podcast called Book versus Movie? And she said, okay. And that's simple as it was. And we knew nothing. And we just kind of just went with it. And it is such a wonderful show. I have listened to almost every episode. I'm wondering, I know a lot of people have certain theories about which books are better than movies and vice versa. Uh, one of my old bosses, she said, oh, as long as it's a bad book, you know that it makes for an outstanding Oscar winning movie. And she always pointed to The Godfather as her example for that. Have you found in your many, many years of making this show that there are you know, certain rules that tend to be the case that's like, oh, if it's this, then the book is going to be better. If it's like this, then the movie's going to be better. One thing I could tell you is Steven Spielberg knows how to adapt material. He knows exactly what to put in, what to take out, because he actually worked with Jaws, which is a terrible book that did <laughs> very, very well. It is a god-awful book, and it is an amazing movie. Margo and I just covered also uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, which is a James Bond film. And, you know, the book is god-awful, and the movie is so much fun. Jurassic Park is also one. Michael Crichton, a very successful writer, not really great with dialogue and with women characters <laughs> or children characters, <laughs> let's just say. But, you know, Jurassic Park, I just saw the latest in the series of Jurassic Park movies. I'm not sure if you've seen the latest. No, but the first one's my favorite. The first one, I, I I really still enjoy that one. Same. And what I like about the most recent one is it brings all these characters back from the first one. So I'm like, do I really like the most recent one? Or do I just like that all the characters came back from the original one? And that's I think why. I would have the same reaction to you. Yeah. In the, in the original <laughs> book, he made the children much, much younger and just very annoying. And like I said, Spielberg, <laughs> once again, just came in. He also took Catch Me If You Can. I don't know if you've ever read that book. Oh, I've never read the book, but that movie is a delight. You go along with it, right? He just he really knows how to take that kind of material and just make it cinematic. He's a genius. That's why he's Spielberg. Yeah, he's so good. He's so, so, so good. So, um, I'm wondering, is it okay if I make a couple of suggestions for books that I think we are always would make looking for suggestions? Oh, that's great. That's great. I mean, you you've covered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds so far, so um, it's hard to come up with ones that you haven't covered yet. But I am a Dolly Parton super fan, as you know, Margot. I love her so much, and I'm not sure if you know about Dumplin', which is a young adult novel about a girl who loves Dolly Parton. She's um, maybe like 16 or so. She loves Dolly Parton. Her mom is a beauty queen, played by Jennifer Aniston in the movie. And she really wants to push her daughter, you know, to be prettier, to, you have such a pretty face. You know, she's not skinny. Her mom is very skinny. Her mom's very obsessed with her looks and so on. And, you know, the lessons of Dolly Parton are always, you know, just to love yourself the way you are and it is a delight. I love that. More Dolly Parton. <laughs> yes, yes. The Dolly Parton content. We will increase that. 
Yes. And then another, which just came out, Fire Island, starring Bowen Yang on Hulu, is based on Pride and Prejudice. Oh, okay. Yes. So I know you've done a lot of Pride and Prejudice and like d- different Jane Austen things. Like I know you've done Clueless. You've done all these other ones. Yes. But this new one, uh, Fire Island, is so fun. And as a New Yorker, Margot, I think you'll just love it. I, I'm I'm totally excited. Pride and Prejudice is my favorite. So I and I love all the iterations that come from it. And I have oh, to see Fire so Island. Everybody tells me how great it is. It is so great. It's so, so, so great. But um, I'm going to stop making suggestions because my list is so long. And I'm going to take a quick break. But when we're back, we're going to talk with you, Margot, about another show of yours that I love. So stay with us, everyone. We are back with the great film and podcasting aficionado, Margot Donahue. Margot. Hello. Can we talk about your other show? What <laughs> well, a One creep. of your other shows, I should say, because <laughs> yes. you, you host a lot of shows. <laughs> I do. But the other show of yours I am just crazy about is called What a Creep. For those not familiar with What a Creep, can you tell us about it? So it's myself and Sonia Mansfield, and we talk about creeps from the past to the present. And it's everything from business frauds to serial murderers to just jackass movie stars from the 1940s (laughs) to horrible comedians that are on the road today. I mean, it's just a little bit of everything. And it's just a way for us to kind of release our righteous rage. And we just adore it. And we end every episode with a non-creep. So you leave feeling a little more positive. There's there's some positive energy in the world. But I know you love the creep part the best. (laughs) Yes, of course. I do. I just love hearing you, you know, shake your fist at the sky. And (laughs) it it is so fun to hear you do that. Because that's what all of us want to do, right? Is just scream at the sky. But you do it so cleverly. And with so many backup nuggets and history. So it's not just like me in my house yelling like, oh, I hate that guy. It's you like giving every piece of evidence that you can, all of it researched, all of it backed up. And it's just, it feels good to just be mad and to, you know, anger is a powerful thing. And, yeah. and, 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 and to just stand on the right side of history and to feel like, oh, here are two women standing on the right side of history doing this. Yeah, I'm so, so happy funny. to hear you say that. I mean, I was raised with righteous anger, both of my parents. <laughs> my mother was in, when I remember when I was very, very little, my mother supported the ERA amendment. She was the president of League of Women Voters on Long Island. She was friends with Gloria Steinem. Yeah, she was. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she, when the ERA didn't pass, I remember her crying at our kitchen table and my dad just like comforting her. And he just said, we got to keep fighting. And he's and he remember he said, well, maybe Reagan will be better. (laughs) 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 But I was raised to take a stand. And I was also raised like, you don't both sides everything. Like some things are just wrong. And it's okay to point it out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just like, no, you're an asshole. That's all there is to it. You're just a creep. Yeah. (laughs) And to me, as a fan of book versus movie, to me, it made total sense that what a creep would be another show that you would make because there's such a crossover between the entertainment world and creeps. And I'm just curious what you think. Do you feel that the entertainment world attracts more creeps? Or do you think the entertainment world turns people into creeps, you know, makes people high on power? There's a definitely a sense of narcissism and entitlement that a lot of creeps have. That's sort of like they're in their DNA. They're allowed to do things because 
this, this, or that. You know, they're entitled to things because they're special. They have their reasons for things. Even when they're doing bad things, there's always some reason for it. And I think it also is in the business world, sports world. I mean, you could see it everywhere. I think in Hollywood, just because it's everywhere and it's always been a part, like for over a hundred years now, it's been a part of our culture and Hollywood stars have been a part of our, our lives. And we kind of do treat them like they're better than us and special. And th- I can see that. I will say though, for the most part, I find really big movie stars that I've met really big famous people to be actually very charming and, and rather sweet. It's the people around them that can be, and I'd say like your A-listers or your people on the rise tend to be the nicest. It's like your B, C, D listers. Could you can find more creeps there? I have to agree with you. Now, both of us, we we've both worked with celebrities a fair amount. Didn't you used to work for Tiger Beat? Is that what it was? Or YM Magazine? YM. That's right. But yes, that's right. You were at YM, and um, I know you have met a lot of famous people over the years. Worked closely with a lot of famous people. Um, I did back in my public radio days. I was a culture producer and a culture critic uh, in public radio. And I have to say, when I met Dolly Parton, she really was an angel on earth. I I just thought this is not possible that she is this wonderful. Oh, she's even better than I thought she would be. Likewise with Betty White, when I met her, there are certain people where I just was blown away. And I thought, you of all people, if you wanted to, could be a total fucking diva. And just they were not at all. And you're right. Some of the like C-listers were. And I'm like, what is going on here? Are you really going to treat me this way? Reality <laughs> TV people, too. Some of them can be real jackasses. And I'm like, <laughs> I met George Clooney at an event. I worked an event. And him and John Cusack were there. And they could have been so snotty. And they absolutely were not. And George especially was very nice to those of us that worked the party. He totally got it. That, you know, he was charming people for money for a charity. But then when it came to us, people that were really working behind the scenes, he was really friendly and warm. And I I just thought like, yeah, he deserves to be he enjoys being George Clooney. He should enjoy being George Clooney. And he, he does it the right way. So What's not to enjoy if you're George Clooney? You're marrying the smartest, most beautiful woman in the world. You can make change. I mean, you make great movies. Yeah. And you're Rosemary Clooney's nephew. Like, exactly. You're part of this amazing pedigree. And, Miguel Ferrer's you know, cousin. Yeah. Yeah. you got a great life. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't mind being George Clooney for just a day. It seems like it'd be really fun to be him for a day. I would think so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now... I got to talk about some of the creeps to go back to them on one a creep because we're, we're, we're accidentally verging into great people and we, we need to talk about creeps a little bit here. So one of my very favorite episodes of what a creep that you covered was Josh Duggar of 19 Kids and Counting. And full disclosure, I'm kind of obsessed with the Christian patriarchy movement. And I have been for years and years and years. This is like this whole universe of like, you know, there's this giant umbrella and it's God. And under that umbrella is man. And under that umbrella is women. And, you know, everybody, you know, is supposed to protect, but also kind of not really protect, just control what's underneath them. And uh, that's exactly the world that Josh Duggar is part of. And it's like, you know, do all of these women really love being pregnant all the time? Do they love the fact that they're not allowed to go to school? And you talk about a lot of that in your Josh Duggar episode. And, oh, I loved it. You had so many salty words. I loved it so much. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite creep you've covered? And and I'm using favorite, not as in, a, oh, I love him. And I, I just love that creep. But more in a way where when you were doing it, you were just thinking, oh, yeah, we're just going to uncover all the dirt, you know, 
let it all out. Let all of our anger out right here. And it's just going to feel so good. There's a few. So the first would be Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn oh, was a I love great, that episode. such a and funny it so episode. Gross it's gross, so. too. <laughs> I'm warning you. The, his <laughs> autopsy part is kind of nasty. But yeah, I mean, he's a jerk. And he and also there's some some weird animal stuff abuse that I, I didn't go too much into because whatever. He's just a creep on his own. But that was just a fun one. I love those old Hollywood kind of creepy stuff. I oh, also, yeah. So many of them. So many. Uh, Louis B. Mayer was, a one, was oh, one. Yeah. And, Charlie Chaplin. I mean, we've we've covered them all. We also comedy creeps. I'm really passionate. I love comedy. I used to be really into stand up comedy. I've never done it myself, but I have friends who have and work in the comedy world. And to watch it become this brotastic thing is really offensive to me. It really drives me crazy. There's just certain people that are on the road right now let's just say that have very credible accusations against them and it's we're supposed to just shrug our shoulders and say well they're not in jail right now so what are we going to do it makes me absolutely nuts it's not it's unsafe for people especially women around them and oh but margo women aren't funny all right no, no. <laughs> <laughs> all my women friends are i've known this my whole life my mother was funny my sister's hilarious all the women i know in my life are hilarious i don't get that but yeah of course that's another patriarchal thing and then elizabeth holmes is one like the just the fraud of it just the ripping people off people who are bad bosses really get to me because i've had my share of like really just terrible bosses yeah and she's a fascinating one it's just so interesting like her voice just her voice alone her Her voice her Her voice voice alone tubes and tubes of blood (laughs) so so weird but uh what a creep is just it is a delight it sounds like it's just anger but it's also a lot of laughs i laugh so hard listening to every episode i really do it's it's nice to have your anger affirmed by another person you know because you don't know always what you can do but it's nice to hear somebody it bothers someone else too it really gets yes. under their skin because some people just aren't bothered by anything and those people drive me nuts the most <laughs> <laughs> there's so much to be bothered by oh yes <laughs> so much all right we're gonna take one more very quick break but when we're back we're going to talk to Margot about her new book, Filmed in Brooklyn. We are back with Margot Donahue and Margot. We need to talk now about your new book. It's available for pre-order now. It's going to be out in just a few months. It's called Filmed in Brooklyn. Tell us about this book. This is a book about movies that are filmed in Brooklyn, shot in Brooklyn, take place in Brooklyn, or just it's you know supposed to be Boston or it's supposed to be Los Angeles or something, but it actually was filmed in Brooklyn. I spent over two years studying. I've taken pictures of dozens of locations. I looked at over 250 movies to get their Brooklyn content out of them. And I'm just super proud of it. I think it's really, it's what I would want to buy. This is something I would want to read. I love it. I'm so excited for this book because as a very proud Brooklynite, as somebody who moved to this town and I knew from the get-go before I even got here, I had this dream. I'm like, I'm going to live in Brooklyn. I never dreamed of living in Manhattan. Uh, I, I don't know. I had all these fantasies that were based now in retrospect, looking back completely on things I'd seen in movies like Moonstruck or whatnot. And so I had this romantic idea of like cobblestone streets and, 
brownstones and, you know, there's going to be trees everywhere and, I don't know, bakeries. I'm going to know all my neighbors. And that's really what Brooklyn was to me. But it was, you know, based on movies where I got that idea from. (laughs) I like that. I, I tell people, like, New York is like that. Uh, as Margot says, my friend Margot, you know, Lincoln Center is just that magical. Like walking yes. around the streets of Brooklyn makes you feel like there's possibilities. Like it puts a smile on your face. You know, uh, Prospect Park is gorgeous. Coney Island is a blast. I mean, it just has so much to offer. It really does. And I just feel like it doesn't always get, I mean, it's starting to, I feel like in the last 10 years or so, it's suddenly gotten like street cred, social cred. And when I say street cred, I mean with like people in Hollywood or like, you know, TV executives or whatever. Uh, And, um, you know, in the past, I think a lot of people were under the impression that it was just like good fellas and it was dangerous and things like that. But it's always had a rich, complex, very diverse story happening here, always, or I should say stories, plural. And I'm just so glad you're shining a light on Brooklyn And I just want to talk about some of the movies that you cover in the book and how exactly you go about covering them. Because you mentioned like some movies, Brooklyn might be a stand in for something else entirely. And in other cases, Brooklyn is really being showcased for being Brooklyn. Yeah, The Departed is filmed, you know, Martin Scorsese loves Brooklyn. He films here all the time, but that stood in for Boston. So there's, I I just love The Departed. That's absolutely one of my favorite movies ever. I'm fascinated by Saturday Night Fever. It's Mm. a movie that came out in 77 and it's this, uh, 78, excuse me, and it's this movie about disco, which was dying at the time. And white men did not like disco. And then there's this movie about a white man, white men that are into disco contests, but they want to leave Brooklyn to go to New York. Like Manhattan is the cool place. Brooklyn is the loser. And here we are all these years later, and it's the opposite. And it's Mm -hmm. so interesting to me how they, and their neighborhood that was very Italian is now Chinese. That, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's so just so interesting to me. Also, Do the Right Thing was one of the movies I saw that made me want to move to New York. I I was in mm. college in San Jose State, and that from that opening sequence with Rosie Perez dancing. Oh, the boxing dance! Oh, oh the boxing dance and the colors. It is. I, I mean, I've said this before many many times before, but Spike Lee's use of color and light is it is art. It is pure art. We are so lucky to live in a generation that he's, you know, alive and well and kicking and still trying new things. I think mm-hmm. I am a completist now. He always does something different and interesting, even if he's trying to go the, the widest possible audience. He's still Spike yes. Lee. He still yes. has to have his little touch in there, which I absolutely love. There's also a movie that I discovered, and it was on Criterion. It's called The Hot Rock. And it's about a heist movie with Robert Redford, and it has Quincy Jones on the soundtrack, and it's a group of guys stealing from the Brooklyn Museum And the, before they put the steps in front of the museum. So they're parked right outside the museum. They blow up a car and then go in there to steal a diamond, and then they try to sell the diamond. And it's just as they're building the Twin Towers, you could see that in the background. It's, oh. and it's I, I know. I, I bought a DVD portable player just so I could own this movie and watch it whenever I want. But this is what happened to me. Like, I started watching all kinds of movies, and it's just... It, it's, so, it's just been amazing. And Moonstruck, of course, you mentioned before... Talk about Mm -hmm. something that is timeless and always seems fresh, even though it's right smack dab in the middle of 1987. 
it still mm-hmm. feels like you could go there and see these people yes. and talk to them. And it's just, it's just as magical as it was then. And there are some movies where it feels like it just couldn't take place anywhere else, with Moonstruck being one of them. It's like this story couldn't take place in, I don't know, Seattle or Wichita. It has to be in Brooklyn. Yeah. It has to be. There's no other way this story could be told without it being there. And um, and I love it when the neighborhood is actually kind of a character in the movie. In a way, I sort of feel that way about Dog Day Afternoon. It's funny because the bank is in Gravesend, but they filmed it in Windsor Terrace. And that's actually yes. a few blocks away from me. That's not that far at all. And it's fascinating to just look around there, Windsor Terrace, to see like how that's changed over the years. I'm one of those people, like I see that, like, oh, that's the park, or that's this. <laughs> I, I remember that. That's what it looked like in 82. That's, that's fascinating. I love that stuff. Oh, me too. And uh, one really great example of that, I think, is War. Warriors, because in Warriors, just like when I think of the subway nowadays <laughs> versus what the subway looks like there, subway back in those days, it does not look like a hospitable mass transit system. And then, you know, you look at mass transit nowadays <laughs> in New York, it doesn't even look like the same place. But you know, what's funny about the Warriors is that it's like there's no blood, really. It's not really... It's intense, but it's not really that violent compared to, I mean, I think it's just more over the top, which is the reason why I think it's like, it, you know, it's it's sort of the comic book universe before we had one, I think, because mm-hmm. that's the sort of the comic book world is that you're taking in. But those last scenes at Coney Island are incredible. It just, it's such a journey that they go on. And it's so fantastic. It really is. And I, I feel like I could go on and on with, you know, talking about movies all day with you. But I do know we do have to talk a little bit about Goodfellas because yes. Ray Liotta, R.I.P., very, very recently and and, and way too young. Um, but, you know, Goodfellas for a lot of people that epitomizes for a lot of people like certain aspects of Brooklyn as well. They filmed it here. They filmed quite a bit of it here. Smith and Ninth Street, which is in Carroll Gardens adjacent let's just say was very dicey at the time and now there's a family park that's right there <laughs> and there's there's places where where uh joe pesci's character is uh eliminated let's just say uh there's that house <laughs> that i went by it the, new york just really yeah brooklyn is just a wonderful background for them and it it does look like 70s 80s that they're going for in there and it just it completely it's timeless in that way and it's that it movie is. totally holds up. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, this is very violent and it's very loud. There's a lot going on here. And 30 years later, I'm like, I could just watch it anytime. Oh, likewise. It's almost like watching MTV in a way. You can see how it was influenced by, you know, how media was changing at the time. Such quick cuts compared to other movies that were out there, snappy dialogue, except when they deliberately decided to do, you know, long continuous shots, the very famous one that's in there, where, oh my gosh, how many minutes long is that? I don't know. But it, it's like being taken on a journey in that one through the club. It's fascinating. And then there's the one where it's the long shot of the couple in the car, and they're playing Layla, the piano. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. It, it's, <laughs> yeah, it all just sticks in your mind. It, and what won the for best movie that year? I What was it? 1990. Oh, Dances with Wolves, I think it was. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I hated that movie. Goodfellas deserved it. Goodfellas deserved it. Okay, so got to ask you, I'm sure you learned a ton while you were researching this book. 
Can you tell us any funny factoids or, you know, not not to spoil the book, don't want you to give the whole book away, but are there any funny factoids you can reveal to those of us who want to know some bits and pieces about Brooklyn and the movies? The One of the very first American movie studios, if not the very first, there's sort of a little bit of a you know, controversy there. But I say, yes, it is. It's the first big motion picture studio was in Brooklyn. It was in Midwood and it was called Vitagraph Studios. And the owners of it bought their machine from Thomas Edison, who sold it for nothing. He just wanted to get a magazine story about it. And they decided to show motion pictures. And then they said, well, if we make our own pictures, we'll make the money from it. And they went out to Midwood, which was nothing in 1897. <laughs> I mean, nobody really worked in Brooklyn. You, some immigrants lived in Brooklyn, but most people worked and lived in the city. And these people would come out, and it was immigrants who came out because it was silent era. So you didn't have to mm-hmm. be able to speak English. You could just show up in pantomime. And people would show up with costumes. And they'd make <gasps> from the city in baskets. And this is when all elevated trains were going through Brooklyn. So they'd have to walk down like 100 feet downstairs, upstairs, baskets full of like, we're going to do a Dickens Christmas Carol. So everybody bring your Christmas stuff. And they would just make their own costumes and show up and do this. And Valentino had a start there. The Marx Brothers had their early start there. It's really fascinating to me that and then the silent era then turned to the talkies and then we have everything else but vitagraph was a big big deal for a long time and that's where movies began oh that's fantastic the movies they belong to us to us here in brooklyn (laughs) they're ours (laughs) well margo i am so excited to read your book and it's just been so fun having you on the show today. For those who want to follow everything you're doing, there's a lot, who want to listen to your shows, who want to pre-order your book, where can they all find out more about you? My site is brooklynfitchick.com. I'm actually going to be transitioning into margodonahue.com and have everything in one spot. But for now, especially on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at brooklynfitchick and I've pinned the the Amazon post there. So you can pre-order the book right now on Instagram and then on TikTok. I'm at Margot Donahue. I've been doing some fun things. We're taking locations and putting my photos next to the movie. So definitely check out my TikToks and please reach out and say hi. And also any suggestions for books and movies, send them my way. We're always looking for them. Yay. Well, thank you so much again, Margot, for being on. It's been such a treat having you here. It was such a delight. Thank you so much. And that's it for this bonus episode of Movie Therapy. If you're not already, please follow me and Rafer on Twitter. I'm at Kristen Meinzer, and Rafer is at Rafer Guzman. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Bye-bye.